Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you have ever traveled outside this country or your country of origin and then returned back home, then you know something of the odd sensation of seeing all the same things you've already seen, but seeing them very differently. So if you take a missions trip or you just travel to a part of the world where there's greater poverty, and then you return back to your neighborhood Walmart, and you go into the breakfast aisle and you see box after box after box of a wide selection of cereals, before you travel, you are numb to that. That just seems, of course, everyone in the world can choose from hundreds of cereals. But once you've traveled, say, to Africa or to a place struck with poverty, the developing world, and you return and you see the exact same cereal boxes, the selections are the same, they've not changed, but you have changed. Some of you know what I mean. They're not the same cereal boxes. It's not the same Walmart. It's not the same country in a sense. Everything you're looking at is different because you've realized you're looking at it in a different way. Now, you don't have to have traveled to have this exact sensation because if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you know this sensation as well. Before we know Christ, Scripture says, quote, a veil, think of a blanket here, lies over our hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So you live your life and you look around and you see your friends, you see your coworkers, you see whatever employment you're engaged in, you see your family, you see your children, you see your spouse. You see your church, you see your country, you see your neighbors, you see the sky, you see the trees. Then you turn to the Lord and you are going to see all the same things, but you're not going to see any of them the same way. Something dramatic happens, a change in perspective. You go to work and you see that man there that you always see, Bill. You know Bill? You see Bill, and you've always seen Bill. He's got a bald spot up here, he wears glasses, complains a little bit in the workroom. You've always seen Bill. It's the same Bill, but if you've turned to Christ, it's not the same Bill. This man you see now is created in the image of God himself. This man will never cease to exist. Bill, he will live forever, either under eternal felicity or eternal judgment. Before it was just Bill. It's not just Bill anymore. That broad blue sky, you look up and see it, you saw it. You saw it your whole life. You didn't live underground. But now that you've turned to the Lord and the veil is removed, the cereal boxes are different. And the sky cries, the glory of God. And you see it in the sky, in the trees, in nature. It is not just nature. It's the work of God now. The passage I quoted just a moment ago about the veil being removed is actually about how you read the Bible. I'll give it to you in full. It's from Hebrews. Yes, to this day, 
Whenever Moses is read, that's referring to Moses or the law, the first five books of the Bible. Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over unbelievers' hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Meaning, even the way you look at the Bible changes drastically when you turn to the Lord. You can read the Bible as an unbeliever. I mean, these are English words in our translation. They're not symbols. They're not code. You don't have to be a believer to read the Bible, and it will make some sense to you. But when you turn to the Lord and you read the Bible, you read the Gospel of John, things change. You're looking at the same words. They've always been there, but you are not the same. There has been a deep difference. The veil has been removed. In our study of Galatians, we have come today to the part of Paul's letter that is the end of the second major part. And just so you remember, Galatians can be broken down into two chapters at a time. Chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his ministry. Chapters 3 and 4 is his direct argument against the false teaching Judaizers. And then chapters 5 and 6 is really application of how to live a free Christian life in the gospel. But what Paul is going to do now at the end of chapter 4, and really the end of that second section, he's made his argument against the Judaizers, against false teaching. And as he comes to the end, at the end of chapter 4, leading into chapter 5, he's going to take a story from the Bible, from Moses, from the law, that you're familiar with, that his original readers were very familiar with, they had seen. But he's going to take that story and not let it go until you see it differently. Like the cereal boxes. Until you see in that story the point of freedom that there is in Christ. So let's look at that here in Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? Those five books of Moses. For it is written, it's going to Genesis, the first one, that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Hagar, and one by a free woman, that's Sarah. But the son of the slave... Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. There's the story. And now this. Now, this story, this may be interpreted allegorically in a different way. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice! O barren one, like Sarah, who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, 
You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul has been pleading for a long time now, if you've been with us in this study, against a group known as the Judaizers. These are false teachers. The Judaizers, if you remember, had snuck into the church that Paul had helped to plant. Paul had proclaimed a gospel, the same gospel we proclaim to you today, the same gospel we hold to. It is this hope that through faith in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done on the cross and in his resurrection, we can be saved from eternal judgment, reconciled to God, have eternal life, be adopted into the family of God, have our sins completely forgiven. That's the gospel. Paul proclaimed that to the Galatians. They believed it. They were changed. Then came the Judaizers. Soon as Paul was out of there, in they come. And the Judaizers said, that's a really great gospel you've got there, but it's missing something. It's missing Jewishness. You have trusted in Jesus, that's good, but he was a Jew. If you want to be a real, full follower of Jesus, yes, believe in him, but also you must add on to that certain Jewish works. You must be circumcised, and you must keep elements of the law of Moses that was given on Sinai. Do those things, and you will live. Now, the Galatians had not fully bought in to the false teaching of the Judaizers, but Boy, they were close. And that's why in our text he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. They're not under there yet, but they are desiring because of the Judaizers to add circumcision, to add the law, to become good Jews who also worship Jesus. And so as I said in chapters 3 and 4 of this letter, Paul has been making a direct argument against the Judaizers and for his gospel of salvation, not by keeping the law, not by being good enough, but by faith in the promise of God. Really, as you're going to see in the weeks that follow, Paul's whole argument in this letter, and especially in chapters 3 and 4, as he comes to the end of the second section, has been leading into one main point— and you're going to see it in perhaps the most significant verse of this entire book that will start chapter 5. We'll start the next section. If you look there, chapter 5, verse 1, everything's focused on this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom, not slavery. Freedom, not slavery. That is Paul's point. That is the gospel. Freedom from slavery. And if you try to add anything into it, slavery. Not everyone sees that clearly. And that's why what Paul is going to do today, as he moves toward that conclusion, is take a story very familiar to them, to the Judaizers, the Galatians, and a story probably very familiar to you. But he's going to take it and put it in front of you and ask you to see more than maybe you've seen before in this story. 
not just to see the story. That's what he says here. Do you not listen to the law? He's going to take a story from the law, first five books, in this case the first, Genesis. He'll take a story about Abraham's slave and wife, and he's going to put it before you. You'll see the story, and then he'll say, this may be interpreted in a different way, allegorically. And he's going to press you to see things differently. So that is our prayer, that through this story, God, through Paul, will help us to see the serial boxes of life, and even of the Bible itself, in a different, accurate way. So let's look at the story itself that he's presenting, and then let's turn our attention to what the story tells us, what it points to beyond itself. So look at the story itself. Everyone's agreed on this, verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. That's the story itself, if you just pause it right there. Now Paul and the Judaizers whom he's fighting against would be in total agreement on those two verses. You can go and read this. The story of Abraham in the book of Genesis begins at the end of chapter 11 and continues on for many chapters, makes up a good chunk of the center of the book of Genesis. And just by way of review, since we don't have time to read all of that together, you may remember that Abraham originally served idols in the land of Mesopotamia. But the one true God revealed himself to Abraham and told him, get up, you're leaving Ur, to Haran, and then you're leaving Haran, and you're going to a land that I will show you. And I am going to give this land to your descendants forever. Now, that was an unusual thing for Abraham to hear because Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65 years old, and Sarah was infertile. She had never had a child. But even if she had been able to have a child at 65 years of age, it was now a double impossibility. So for God, this God to appear to Abraham and say, I'm giving this land to your descendants and they will be many descendants, was shocking. Actually, it was an impossibility twice over. But Abraham was a man of faith and he took God at his word and he got all he had, and the servants in his household, and his wife, and he left to go and see if God would really do that impossible thing that he had promised. Abraham staked everything upon it. We find that in Genesis chapter 12. He leaves for that land, that land which we now call Israel or Palestine. That's where he goes. And then a decade goes by, 10 years of wandering about in that land, and guess what? Still no child. And neither Abraham nor his wife are spring chickens. He started 75, now he's 85, now his wife is 75, still barren, still impossible to have a child. And after 10 years of waiting, it's hard for us to wait one year. COVID happened three years ago. Imagine 10 years go by and you're still waiting for God to keep his promise. And so at this point, Abraham and Sarah hatch a wonderful idea where they'll help God out. Because <laughs> maybe God's having a hard time keeping his promise. So when we get to Genesis chapter 16, 
10 years later, Sarah says this to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, this is Hagar, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. So this is a female slave within the household of Abraham, Hagar. And you know the story that Hagar does in fact conceive by Abram. Abraham has a child named Ishmael. Abraham thinks, finally, we helped God out. Now he can keep his promise of many descendants possessing this land. But God appears to him again and says, thanks, but I didn't need your help. <laughs> that was a terrible idea. What have you done? And God says, I am still going to keep my promise. Trust me. And it's going to be through Sarah, your wife, not through Hagar. And that is just what happens in Genesis 21. So we started in Genesis 12, Genesis 21. After another decade and a half, another decade and a half, we read this. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised about 10 chapters ago, about 25 years ago or more. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, he told him a year before it would happen. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah, it's important, whom Sarah, not Hagar, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. You know how old Abraham was when Isaac was born? 100 years old. And Sarah was 90 years old. God waited just to make it clear there was no physically possible way this could happen. It happened merely on the strength of God's promise. That's it. That Abraham left his home trusting in. Now, everyone is agreed on this point. Paul, Judaizers, Galatians, you, if you read Genesis, there it is. What Paul has said thus far is just review. It's not controversial. It's clearly true. However, it's about to get controversial because Paul wants the Galatians to read this story, but not to read it the same way they'd always read it. Not just those details. That's why we have this surprising statement in verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. That might not be the best way to put that. He's saying this is interpreted allegorically. This has an allegorical meaning to it. Before we move to that meaning, we do have to pause here and consider what Paul's going to do with this. Some of you might be familiar with the idea of allegory or allegorical. And to others of you, that's just a weird word. Maybe you never heard that word. What can that mean that you interpret this story allegorically? Let me pause here. The confusion that could arise when we read a text like this is that this was written 2,000 years ago in a different language. And since that time, there's been a very long tradition, even among Christians, of allegorical or allegory, allegorical interpretation. The issue is, if you look at church history, when church thinkers long ago, but after the time of Jesus, used allegory, it wasn't usually like Paul. <laughs> they were most often doing something bizarre and very different from Paul. 
And we can't confuse those two things together. We don't have time this morning to talk about the whole history of what allegory is. If we did, we would talk about how it probably began in Greek thought. The Greeks were already using something called allegory when they interpreted their own poetry and writings, like Homer, if you had to read the Odyssey or the Iliad. The Greeks, before the time of Jesus, would go to the Odyssey and the Iliad, which were confusing enough for you in high school, and they would make them even more confusing by reading them in some mystical manner, finding things in those poems that were never in those poems. But it was a part of the Greek way of thought, influenced by Plato, that there was always something higher. You're seeing things on earth, but there's always something higher. And what are those higher things everything's pointing to? The Greeks did that. The Greeks influenced the Jews. And so right at about the time of Paul himself, there was a great Jewish thinker, not a Christian, a Jewish thinker down in Egypt in Alexandria. His name was Philo, and he was the master allegorizer. He took the Greeks' way of allegorizing things, and he applied it to the Old Testament and to his Jewish tradition as a Jew. And then, not surprisingly, in that same location, Alexandria in Egypt, after the time of Jesus, many Christian thinkers were influenced by people like Philo, Jewish, who was in turn influenced by the Greek culture. So that came into the church. So if you've ever read the church fathers, especially a group we call the Alexandrian church fathers who were centered there in Alexandria, Egypt, you maybe have come away from those church fathers thinking, what in the world are they writing about? Some of their writings are so bizarre. Even Augustine, the great church father who was not in Alexandria, but he would allegorize as well. Have you ever read the confessions by him and you get to the last chapters and it's allegory? Say, this makes no sense. You're right, it doesn't. But that's where allegorizing came from in the Greek culture. And the idea of allegorizing, that kind of allegorizing, before we get to Paul, is that you would take some text, and then you would take some outside mysterious key, and you would apply it to the text to unlock the mysteries that are there. And you know this is still happening today. It's bestsellers on the Christian bookstores. It drives you crazy. Mysteries that have never been seen before, if you add up certain numbers and names... If you find something in the Bible that no one ever found before, just leave it there because you probably didn't find it. But that's what was happening with allegory. Let me just give you an example. If you're still wondering how does allegorizing work outside the Bible, let's just take Philo, the great Jewish allegorizer. He actually provided an allegorical interpretation of what we're talking about, Hagar and Sarah. And what Philo said was this. Hagar really represents basic Greek education. You knew that, right? When you read that story in Genesis, that's what you thought. Oh, basic Greek education, of course, of course. That's what she represents, basics, astronomy, geometry, all the basics. And then she has Ishmael. Now, Ishmael represents what happens if all you've got is basic education, then you just get head knowledge, but not wisdom. And that's what Ishmael, of course, you knew this, represents. Just head knowledge, not wisdom. Over on the other side, you've got Sarah, the free woman. Now, Sarah represents virtue. 
Of course she does. And she gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac represents true wisdom. Now, you knew this, so I don't have to tell you, but the fact that Ishmael was born first, the fact that basic knowledge came first means if you want to gain virtue and true wisdom, you've got to start with a basic Greek education. But the fact that Ishmael and his mother were sent away and replaced with Isaac means you've got to move beyond your basic Greek education to grab hold of wisdom that comes through virtue. Isn't that how you always read that story? <laughs> no, you never did. And nobody but Philo ever did. So what I want to make clear is that there is a kind of interpretation, allegorical interpretation, that is in the history of the Greeks, the history of the Jews, and the early history of the Christians. It actually bled over into the medieval ages. So if you read medieval thinkers, Christian medieval thinkers, they do this allegorizing, pulling stuff out you never would have imagined. That, how should we put this delicately, is baloney. So don't do that when you're reading the Bible. If it's a meaning no one else can get because you're taking something basic Greek education, you're taking something from out there and you're forcing it in and saying, look, the mysteries. They're, they're mysteries because nobody else gets it. You're the only one who's getting that. I want to make clear that that is not what Paul is doing here. Now, there's a sense in which I guess Paul could do that. He has the gospel as an outside key and he has divine revelation. So there's a sense in which Paul does reveal mysteries. But the way that Paul is handling this text is not by pulling something out of it that you and I could never in 10 trillion years ever even imagine from that story in Genesis. Paul is doing what you and I ought to do when we study Scripture. Draw our understanding of the passage from the passage itself. You see this? Bible and it has the text itself, when you're reading the text itself, get your information from the text itself. Don't do this. Hmm, ah, Greek education. Don't do that. Don't do that. You draw it from what you're reading. It's a simple point of hermeneutics or how we study the Bible. I want to make clear that Paul's allegorizing is not the same as much of the allegorizing that has happened in the history of Christian thinkers. Now, to make this clear to you, let me just begin here. How can Paul pull this information that you have in this passage from the story in Genesis? Because maybe you didn't do that. You have to start with what is at the center of the Hagar-Sarah story. In the text itself. Not out there. Here. It is contrast. It's contrast. I don't usually quote commentaries, but I thought I'd quote just this one briefly because it puts it so perfectly. Here it is. Paul was doing no injustice to the biblical text to focus attention on the contrasts and conflicts in the Hagar-Sarah story, for those are the features on which the dynamic of the story depends. Nor was he unique in so doing. Many of the contrasts and conflicts he highlights were highlighted by other Jews as well. See, it wasn't just Paul, just him pulling that out. Other people saw it too, because it's really there. What Paul does in this text is he takes that Hagar-Sarah story, and he says, look, you know, if you know that story, that it's full of contrast, right? You've got Hagar, and on the other side, Sarah. 
You've got Ishmael, and on the other side, Isaac. You've got a slave woman, and on the other side, a free woman. You've got one who brings a child to being just in a natural, procreative way, by the flesh, according to the flesh in our passage. And you've got one who's depending on the promise with a child supernaturally conceived. Those are different contrasts. And then all Paul does when he says he's doing allegory is tease out those contrasts. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to follow Paul. We've seen the story itself. Now we're going to see what the story points to beyond itself. And it all starts in contrasts. So let's do that. Going beyond the story, he opens the gate there, verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, differently, but based in the text. Here's how he starts. These women are two covenants. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible, but it's a hard text, okay? So you bear with me. What you should imagine are two columns here. Here and here. Let's see. This is your right side. Okay, so put, put Sarah at the top of this column. And you're going to put Hagar at the top of this column. Contrasted. Sarah column, Hagar column. And what he says is, think of it this way. These women represent, it, they are, but he's saying they represent two covenants. So here on the Sarah column is the new covenant. It's the covenant we participate in. It's the covenant of life. It's the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham that his seed Christ would come and bring freedom for us. It's the covenant that Christ inaugurated at the Last Supper when he said, this drink, this is my blood with which I inaugurate a new covenant. Our covenant. That's with Sarah. Sarah, new covenant. The other covenant, Hagar, old covenant. This is the covenant God made with his people at Sinai. When he took them there and said, here are my rules, keep them and live. Okay? New covenant with Sarah, old covenant with Hagar. All right. So those are our columns thus far. Now our verse continues. One... Over here, Hagar. One is from Mount Sinai, where the old covenant was made. See how he didn't just make that up? That's where the old covenant was made. Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. So you got Hagar, old covenant, now add Mount Sinai. Those all go together. And if you know Sinai, you know that's where the law was given. You who want to be under the law, that's where the law was given. So, of course, that's where the law goes, on that column. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Paul knew that region because he said in chapter 1 he'd spent some time there. So, we've got those three things here. She, Hagar, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, now, under law, we add the present Jerusalem, the actual city on earth. Jerusalem. And lastly, if we go back to verses 22-23, the description of the story, and add those details into this column, then on the Hagar side we'll also have Ishmael, and we'll also have flesh, because he was born according to the flesh in a merely natural way. So the Hagar column reads, Hagar, Old Covenant, Mount Sinai, Law, Jerusalem, Ishmael, Flesh. And those all go together. Now, 
you might say, some of those do seem like they go together. That makes sense. But hold up. How can Paul put those all together? The Judaizers would not agree. Because Jerusalem, Sinai, the basis of God's relationship with the nation Israel, Israel did not come through Ishmael. You can't put those on the same column. They came through Isaac on the other column. How can you? Sarah is the mother of the nation in a biological sense. So how can Paul put them there? Is he reaching out for some external key and just making it up, pulling it out of a hat? No. He is not Origen. He is not any of those early church thinkers. He is basing it on the text. Here's how he does it. Why do those go together? Because if you think of them like beads, there is one thread that runs through all of these together, and it is slavery. Look at this in the text. In verse 22, the Hagar column here, she's she's not even called Hagar there. She's called a slave woman. Verse 24, Hagar is, quote, from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. So Sinai relates to slavery. And Paul had already shown that, that the Jewish people were slaves to the Stoicheia. If that makes no sense, you go back and listen to that previous sermon. But they were slaves to the Stoicheia under the law. Then verse 25, Hagar, quote, corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Hold up, how's that going to work? Well, here's how. For she is in slavery with her children. The Jerusalem of Paul's day, like the Jerusalem of our day, is filled with people trying to be right with God by keeping the law of Moses. And Paul has made clear that means you are a slave. So those are the beads, and the one string that ties them all together is slavery. So you see how those go together. They're not made up. They have to go on the same column, on the Hagar column. Now if you look at the other column... You have Sarah at the top, and just as you might expect, there is one thread putting all these beads together, and it's freedom. That's how Paul decides what goes on this column, freedom. So we've got Sarah, and if we look at what the text says and what it implies, here's what we get. You ready? Sarah, that's opposite Hagar. New covenant, opposite the old covenant. This one's not in the text. But this is, you can find it in Hebrews. Mount Zion that we sang about. Picture of heaven. Mount Zion opposite Mount Sinai. Faith, which is opposite law. The Jerusalem above, which is opposite the Jerusalem below. The present Jerusalem. Isaac opposite Ishmael and promise. Sarah, new covenant, Mount Zion, faith. Jerusalem above, Isaac, promise. That is this column and the string holding these beads together, freedom. Slavery, freedom. So all of these ideas are associated on that basis. Verse 26, you can see freedom is what holds these together. The Jerusalem above is free. That's why the Jerusalem above goes over here, not over here. It's free. And she is our mother. So if you step back and look at what we have here, you have a new way of looking, not just at the Hagar-Sarah story, but this is really a new way of looking at life. This is a new way of looking at the Christian life. The Judaizers were trying so hard to take the law, Mount Sinai, obedience apart from faith, 
Jerusalem, Judaism, circumcision, dietary laws, and they were bringing them to the Galatians and saying, look, freedom, life, if you keep these. And what Paul is doing is he's taking those from the Judaizers and saying, let me show you, let me help you really see what's going on here from your own Bible. These things that the Judaizers offer you as a picture of freedom, they go over here. They are slavery. They are not freedom. This is a paradigm shift for the Judaizers, probably for the Galatians, for all the early Jewish converts to Christianity. It's a shift. And it, this is a paradigm shift for us too. Now, you might say, I'm not addicted to Jerusalem or to Sinai or to the law. I don't even know the dietary laws. I'm not addicted to those things. But at essence, this is the same kind of paradigm shift necessary for anyone in our country who wants to come to Christ. Because what we do here is the same in essence. We take what? Being good enough. Having a good moral compass. Got a decent family. You go to church. You might draw your morality roughly from the Ten Commandments of the law. You might even draw your morality from the moral teachings of Jesus himself. And your way of looking at the cereal boxes along the shelf is, well, if I'm good enough, I'm not so bad as so-and-so down the road. I'm not Hitler. I've kept enough of these commandments. I live like Jesus enough. So surely, freedom. Surely, I'm a Christian. Surely, I live and what Paul does in this text is takes your good enough, your American version of it, he takes your good enough, he says, this is what you're trusting in, and he puts it over here. He says, it's slavery. If that's what you're trusting in for your salvation, you're a slave. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to corruption. You're a slave to death. You're a slave to judgment. You're a slave to people's opinions. You're a slave to your own temptations. You're a slave to the law that you've created for yourself. You are not free. If you don't see that, it's because a thick veil lies over your heart. The hope from a passage like this, Paul's hope, my hope, God's hope, if we can say that, is that he would be removing even just the edge of that veil if that's where you find yourself. Even the edge of that veil. So that you come to see that you're good enough that you've been trying to be and do. It's useless. It's slavery. You're never good enough. Listen, you're not good enough. Good enough for God? You could be good enough for me. I don't have that high a standard. You're going to be good enough for God? You can't be good enough for God. If God is lifting the veil in your heart and you have thought that way internally, I'm decent. I'm decent. Decent people are slaves. Decent people are destroyed by the judgment to come. Decent people are on this side. If you see that in yourself, that you're trying to be just a decent person to get right with God is useless and you feel something of the slavery of it, you want to be free? You want to be free? Because there is another column. There is freedom over here. But this freedom is under Sarah. And who was Sarah? 
Was she the one who was a very decent, good person, lived a nice, comfortable life in a gated community and had a picket fence and drove two cars and everything went really well for Sarah. She had a very easy life. She was decent, moral, went to church, tithed. That was Sarah and God blessed her, of course, and she had many children and she, they grew up and they praised their mother. No, that was Hagar. Hagar could have children and Sarah could not. Look at the last verse in our text. It's quoting from Isaiah 54, which is actually about a situation that would come long after the time of Sarah, but which also refers to Sarah. Rejoice, O barren one, Sarah, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, Sarah, will be more than those of the one who has a husband, Hagar, who is able to bear. Sarah was barren for a whole lifetime until she was 90. She did not bear. She did not labor. That's a description of her. She is the desolate one. Hagar could bear according to the flesh. She had the child. Naturally speaking, people would be tempted to think, oh, Hagar. Wow, God has blessed her. She's got it going on. God has blessed her. She is fruitful, fruitful womb. That is God's blessing over here, Sarah. She can't have children. Probably her sin. She's probably sinful. It's probably some problem. She's cursed of God. That's the way we look on earth. But faith has a different paradigm. Faith looks at the story and realizes actually Sarah represents freedom because Sarah had faith in the promise of God. You find yourself desolate, you find yourself broken, you qualify, you're pre-approved. You can have faith in the promise of God. Can you keep the law of God? Probably not. No, you can't. Can you give it a good go? Maybe, if you were, had a moral upbringing, but maybe not. Maybe you're real broken. But can you have faith in the promise of God concerning the Christ? Yes, you can. You can be saved, but it has to be here through faith, not through works. You can be a barren one like Sarah and trust the promise and be saved. That passage that he's quoting here comes from the very beginning of Isaiah 54. And you might know the chapter that precedes it, Isaiah 53. Let me just read you the last verse of Isaiah 53 immediately before the passage being quoted. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And it's right after that comes the command. Rejoice, O barren one, Sarah. And all Sarah's here, all who cry Sarah's tears, all who are barren and broken, all of you who, unlike Hagar, cannot bear, you who are desolate, you who have nothing but the promise of God. That's it. Your 65th, your 75th, your 85th, your 90th year, you live on the basis of the promise that Christ bore the transgressions of many. That's all you've got. That's all you're holding to. Your life might not look amazingly blessed. You are not Instagram worthy. You don't have the nice house. You don't have the nice things you see with others. Are you cursed of God? That's one way to look at it. It's the wrong way to look at it. 
the right perspective looks at your life and sees something totally different. It sees the suffering. It sees the pain, like Sarah, her barrenness. It sees the brokenness. It sees your moral weakness. It sees your failures. It sees those things, but faith in the prom promise sees all those things differently. Because you've left, you've tried to climb Mount Sinai, and guess what? It didn't work. And now you've come back and you see things differently. You see, no, you can't be good enough. There's no good enough here. Nobody here is good enough. Faith in the promise. Faith in the Messiah. Faith in the true descendant of Sarah. Faith in the freedom that is ours through faith in the promise, nothing else. You close your eyes, you open them again, and this time with faith, look at all your circumstances, look at all your weakness, but don't look at it the same way. Look at it allegorically. Look at it the way God means for you to look at it. Not just the secular facts of your life, but the spiritual ones. You have not come to Mount Sinai. You have not come to a church that says, try harder, be better, and maybe you'll be right with God. No. What does the Scripture say? This is your life, Christian, right now, right now, from the letter to the Hebrews. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, your circumstances are irrelevant. You are free. Free not to be good enough. Free to have the blood of Christ cover all of your sins. And may God grant us to be able to look at our lives and see just that. <laughs>